0: top of the tuesday morning to you oregon i'm finn jd john fj at offbeatoregon.com and this is the daily offbeat oregon podcast Since it is Tuesday, this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode several years ago. Thanks for downloading, and I sure hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on May 6th, 2012, under the headline, Roaring Twenties Murder Mystery Solved by Cops Diligence. Here we go. The sun had just gone down on a warm early summer night, and the twilight was in the final stages of fading away, when Union Pacific Railroad Special Agents Buck Phillips and H.G. Snyder stepped into the railroad yards to make the rounds. There'd been some issues in the rail yard. A gang of thieves had been systematically pillaging the railroad that year. Their M.O. was a simple one and evidently pretty effective. They'd sneak aboard an outbound boxcar full of cigarettes, and while the train was en route, start chucking boxes of smokes out the door. Other members of the gang would come along afterwards and retrieve them, and they were clearly doing this at night, because the following day, railroad agents would usually find a case or two that they'd missed. And this had been going on for three months. So Phillips and Schneider weren't just making the rounds on the night of June 14, 1921. They were looking for somebody and they had to have been a little nervous about what might happen when they found him. The two of them walked along the train, one on each side, flashlights in hand, revolver holsters unsnapped and ready to draw. Phillips saw a dim outline bundled up on a flat car loaded with machinery, a man riding the rails. Technically, this was illegal, and the two agents, bulls as they called them, were supposed to kick him off. But as a practical matter, Phillips and Schneider didn't much care about rail riders as long as they weren't causing any trouble. Quote, ''Where are you going?'' Phillips asked him. Heading for Baker, Chief,'' the grizzled bindle stiff said, adding that he was going to Eastern Oregon for the hay harvest. Phillips nodded and moved on. This would turn out to be a mistake. If he'd paused another moment and asked another question or two, the traveler might have told him that a couple of rough-looking customers had passed him by just before the two bulls arrived, moving in the same direction, up the train. The agents moved on, methodically working their way up the side of the train. A few cars later, Phillips saw what he was looking for—an open boxcar door. In 1921, on the Union Pacific line to Troutdale, boxcars did not roll around with their doors open. They were full of freight, and they were sealed shut. If that boxcar door was open, it was open because somebody had opened it. Phillips pulled his revolver out and brought his flashlight up. Come on out of there, he barked. There was silence for a moment. Then the inside of the boxcar lit up with four bright, fiery flashes as the sound of pistol shots split the night. Three .38 caliber bullets lanced into Phillips. One in the upper arm, one in his thigh, and a third in his lower chest. He crumpled to the ground. Then two men jumped out of the boxcar and ran. Schneider scrambled under the boxcar and once on the other side, got up and emptied his own thirty-eight Special after the fleeing shadowy forms. Phillips managed to get three shots off of his own before losing consciousness. He never regained it. Two hours later, in the hospital, he died. The next morning, Portland Police Detective John Goltz was on the scene, and police and railroad agents searched the area carefully. They didn't find much, but they soon realized that one of the bull's pistol shots had hit one of the bad guys. There was a substantial blood trail leading away from the train. Gultz's investigation led through several dead ends over the next few days, but the publicity the case had generated was helping quite a bit. One key breakthrough happened when a truck driver reported he'd been hired to move some large, mysterious boxes, fairly frequently, from the Davis Hotel located at 123 and a half Russell Street in Albina, to a nearby grocery store. Now, it seemed kind of weird to be moving freight through a hotel like that. Then an anonymous tipster called and suggested that Goltz might want to talk to a man named Dan Casey, who might be staying at, you guessed it, the Davis Hotel. Goltz decided he'd better go take a look. When police arrived at the hotel, the owner, John Burns, was friendly and helpful and loud. "'Ain't nobody here by that name!' he boomed. "'I haven't seen him since last Wednesday!' Then a woman walked out of one of the rooms. Gultz asked her straight out, "'Where's Casey?' "'I haven't seen Dan for a week!' the woman bellowed in reply. Meanwhile, Mr. Burns was slowly unlocking doors in the hallway, making sure the locks made plenty of rattly noises. "'I told you Casey wasn't here!' He roared cheerfully. But seeing as how you are, bulls, I suppose I'll have to show you around. In the first room, the detectives found a black doctor's bag full of bandages. And in the second room, a basket full of bloody gauze. There was also a thirty-eight special, loaded with dried blood all over it, and a box of blasting caps. The trail seemed to be hotting right up. And yet, half an hour later, Colts and his men were getting ready to leave. They had not found their man. Like the cocky suspect on an old episode of Columbo, Burns now started laughing at them. You see, copper, he jeered, I wasn't lying to you, Casey isn't here. Then Goltz realized there was one more room that they had not searched, the one the loud-talking woman had emerged from earlier. When they walked into it and started searching, one of the detectives gave a sudden yell. Look out, he cried. There's somebody under that bed. At the same time, a long arm snaked out from under the bed and dove under the pillow on top of it, then emerged gripping a big revolver. "'Drop that gun!' shouted Goltz, getting his own out and pointing it at the figure under the bed. It was indeed Dan Casey, and he was promptly arrested and given medical treatment for not one but two gunshot wounds, both from the same bullet, which had gone through his forearm and lodged in his chest." Clearly, it was one of Phillips' dying shots fired at him as he was exiting the boxcar, since all six of Schneider's shots had been from the back. Ballistics tests done on the bloody revolver proved it had been the one used to kill Phillips, and the Baker-bound bindle stiff identified Casey out of a lineup. A jury soon made it official and sentenced him to hang. Two years later, at the Oregon State Penitentiary, it was done. Key sources in this story have included works by Stuart Holbrook and the Portland Morning Oregonian. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. More info is at our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulp Lit Productions, a boutique publishing house about which more can be learned at pulp-lit.com. Speaking of which, if you enjoy listening to me, You might check out some of my audiobooks. You can find them most easily with a search for my name on audible.com. Most of them are old pulp stuff, H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Rice Burroughs, etc., but at least two of them are Offbeat Oregon history type stuff. Check them out if you're so inclined. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com slash cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficarra. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode, email me at fj at Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now.